Hi, it's Ariana. Hi, it's Greg. As a listener to Climate One, we know you care about how climate disruption is affecting all of us now and into the future. I'm guessing you already do several things in the spirit of climate action. Here's another one: giving a donation to us to continue bringing you shows about the causes and solutions to the climate crisis. You can do that at climateone.org/donate. We offer all our podcasts and radio shows for free, but it takes time, effort, and resources to produce new episodes every week. When you give, you help us pay for the talented staff, equipment, and materials we need to make the show. And you'll join a group of other dedicated funders and community supporters who keep Climate One on the air. If you're inspired by the guests and conversations we curate, please consider making a gift today at climateone.org/donate. Thank you for your support, and thanks for listening. Welcome to Climate One at the Commonwealth Club. I'm Greg Dalton, the founder of Climate One. Climate One is a leadership dialogue on energy, the economy, and the environment that discusses the transition to a prosperous, clean energy future. Our guest today is climatologist Stephen Schneider. Professor Schneider holds several appointments at Stanford University in environmental studies, biological sciences, and civil and environmental engineering. He began studying the impact of human activity on the Earth's climate nearly 40 years ago, decades before most people even heard of global warming. In 1971, he received his Ph.D. in mechanical engineering and plasma physics from Columbia University. He then studied the role of greenhouse gases as a postdoctoral fellow at NASA's Goddard Institute for Space Studies. He's testified before Congress numerous times, first in 1979, as a member of the core writing team for the assessment reports. Issued by the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, and is the author of articles and books too numerous to mention. His most recent book is "Science as a Contact Sport: Inside the Battle to Save the Earth's Climate," which is being published and released here today. Please welcome Stephen Schneider. Thanks very much, uh, Greg, for uh, inviting me, and all of you for coming out on such a beautiful day. And indeed, today is the pub date for science as a contact sport, and that's the first display I have seen. So uh, I'm very pleased uh, with that. And uh, what I want to talk about today, I guess the title uh, you gave me, wasn't it, was you know, does science matter in the sweep of these things? And it reminds me when I was at Kyoto. Uh, the Kyoto Protocol uh, debate in 1997, and there was a session called "Does Science Matter?" and I was very cynical and I said, "Nah, nobody's going to show up." So, Pachori and Bob Watson and me, and I don't remember who else was there. One or two others came, and much to our surprise, 400 people showed up, including many national delegates, because even when they weren't talking about their official positions, they actually did really care what the problem was. Uh, so that was heartening. But what I want to do today is I want to frame not so much those people who we would call rationalists who actually want to know something about the facts and they want to know you know what you know what we know and what we don't know yet, but those people who are probably going to be selecting information out of this wide range of available knowledge that suits a particular ideology or client interest, and then hope that the media will give them equal status at the bargaining table with other people. Uh, and that is a good part of the reason why, if any of you have seen the recent polls, the Pew poll, which shows that there's been something like a 20% erosion in people's uh, perceptions of whether global warming is real, let alone whether it's anthropogenic, meaning we did it. So I want to address some of the background, and that's what science as a contact sport tries to do. It's the uh, sort of the 40-year history of how did we know in the 1970s pretty much what would happen. It was theory then, and since then nature's been cooperating with theory. But we kind of knew what was going to happen. You couldn't add four watts of energy over every square meter and have nothing happen. That was basically the argument, and we didn't know whether what was going to happen was a half a degree or three. You know, in some ways we still don't, but I'll come to that later. But the the bottom line was. We also knew that you had to stop using the atmosphere as an unpriced sewer to dump your smokestack and tailpipe waste and, and your uh, your land use change um, uh, interactions. All of that was known. It was not just in the club of a hundred left-brain people. We testified to Congress. We talked to ministers. 
There were national and international meetings. It was out there. So why didn't we succeed? What happened? And can we succeed? Are there lessons? And that's what I try to do, and I'll see if I can do it quickly uh, today. So let me start by saying every time I give a talk, whether it's to Congress or media or, you know, any, any kind of groups, people want to know, well, if I was supposed to fix this problem, and that involves changing away from the status quo, first, before we try to fix what's broken, tell us, you know, why it's broken. And the question I get typically is, so is the science of global warming settled? Doesn't mean you understand everything, but largely settled. It's kind of interesting. I love to do comparisons with audiences. And a couple of months ago, I was in New Zealand, and about 70% of people, when I asked them, said it was settled. I did it in Oklahoma, and maybe 7% of people thought it was settled. So uh, it's interesting how uh, they have a different interpretation of the same information. So let's just you know do a sample, see how easy you guys are going to be. So how many here think that the basic fundamental science of, uh, of global warming, human-induced component, is settled? Oh, you're easy. How many think it's not settled? How many think it's a stupid question? Exactly. Why? Because climate science is a system science. It's like trying to understand your body or trying to figure out something with cancer or how is the educational system going to work most effectively and how are we going to do security. Every one of these complex systems problems has multiple components. And when you break them down, what you find out is rarely do we know everything, and rarely do we know nothing. So we have to break system science into the well-established components, which are settled, I'll tell you a few, into competing explanations where our work has been able to get us to winnow it down to two or three possibilities, and then the speculative stuff. Here's where the disconnect comes along. Special interests will grab what's convenient for their ideology or their position. So you might get somebody from a deep ecology group taking a well-established fact that uh, species at mountaintops, as uh, Terry Root has shown, Shasir and others, could be driven to extinction if they are unique to that place. And that is well-established, and that is a serious concern, and it belongs in the debate. But if that's the only thing you say, then somebody from the other side is going to say, wait a minute, carbon dioxide is a fertilizer of green plants, and in fact the coal industry is still taking out millions of dollars of ads on why they should be paid for putting CO2 in as a public good. Now, of course, they forget to mention that CO2 also fertilizes weeds and pollens and other things. And, oh, by the way, it acidifies the oceans and threatens the bottom of the food chain. But that, those inconvenient bits are left out. So what you end up with is you end up with a cacophony, typically, of people selecting stuff out of context. And then you end up with the end of the world versus good for you. I'll confess my prejudice. The end of the world and good for you are the two lowest probability outcomes. What we are looking at is a multiple range of potential outcomes and what system scientists do when they're working in assessment teams within the U.S. National Academy of Sciences or the Intergovernmental Panel of Climate Change is they winnow out the relative likelihood of these multiple outcomes. That is what the public and the political world and the world of business needs to know because what we really have to be is risk managers. Uh, the science job is risk. Risk is what can happen multiplied times the probability can happen. It is very difficult for ordinary folks to do that. And I have to confess, I'm very frustrated when I see trial by Senate hearing on the details of risk when most people who are testifying are either incompetent to do it and there isn't enough time and the people listening wouldn't get it anyway. The job for the public and for the political world is risk management, which is given the range of risks, how do you want the society to deal with them? What are you afraid of? Do you are more worried about spending present resources as a hedge against potentially serious non-sustainability? Or are you more worried about uh, the fact that if we don't spend it now, we could end up with a very, very unstable future? Those are value judgments, and I'll give you examples along the way. So... All of that is, is critical. The other problem that we have is scientists are, I'm sorry to say, we are toilet trained to bury our leads, lead with our caveats, uh, apologize for the unknown, and actually that's an honest thing. The difficulty is that is by no means the, uh, the philosophy of advocates who follow what I call, how many lawyers do we have here? 
Only one. Wow. Wow. Sorry, I'll pick on you a little bit. What I call sort of courtroom epistemology. It's not my job to make my opponent's case. You know, that leads to trial lawyer jokes. And in fact, I'm not arguing that that's unethical. A lot of scientists think it is. But it's not, because if I were accused of something, I don't want my lawyer dwelling on abstractions of truth. I want him to get me off. That's fine. The problem is when you apply a model where you have elliptical advocates leaving out parts of the story and then other elliptical advocates leaving out other parts of the story, if you have good judges and good juries in enough time, it comes out. But what if the judge and the jury, you know, the public, the Congress, you've got 10 seconds on the evening news for your soundbite and five minutes in front of Congress. That advocacy model is guaranteed to create a distorted impression of the actual nature of scientific reality. And the science matters because what can happen and what are the odds is really important. But when it gets dumbed down into these sound bites that nobody can follow through and most of the people couldn't follow the argument anyway that less than hours, then you end up with public in confusion. So we scientists are part of the problem because we tend to look for consensus. And I have a great deal of struggle with some of my colleagues getting them to be willing to talk about how many meters of sea level rise might we get in the next 100 to 200 years. Well, Greenland is melting much faster, they will tell me, and they're right, than any of our theories say. Therefore, our models are no good. They're underestimating it, so we can't say anything. In fact, that's the time you should be saying it the most. And the answer is, hey, it's worse than our worst conception. We better worry about this. So the working group one of the IPCC, that's the physicists and chemists, they basically said, oh, one to two feet of sea level rise in the 21st century, asterisk, not including the melting of Greenland. Well, Terry and I are in working group two, which is impacts, adaptation, and vulnerability, directed by the 120 governments to do risk management. Remember, risk management is what risks do you want to take? And we said four to six meters of sea level rise in centuries to millennia. Now, how? And we gave it a medium confidence, meaning one-third to two-thirds chance. How could this happen? We all agreed on the same data, yet we were a factor of ten apart. What happened was that working group one said, well, we don't want to do medium confidence. We want to wait until we're really pretty sure, and then we'll talk about it. And what we said is, no, it, that's, that's making a personal social judgment about how to take risks. It's society's job to choose what it wants to hedge against. Therefore, we've got to report everything. And consensus is not about conclusions. Consensus is about the confidence that we have in conclusions. And that may sound like it's subtle, but it's not, because... Supposing you got a spot on your lung from a chest X-ray, which you did for a different purpose than looking for cancer. Well, it could be a healed lesion or it could be the beginning of a tumor. And I actually know two examples where this really happened. So they were asked what to do. Well, what should we do, Doc? Well, do a biopsy. Well, it's hard to get to. We have to do surgery. Surgery has a risk. It's expensive. It's painful. In other words, there's a price for a false positive. If you believe that that could be cancer and you try to take it out, you will pay a price. So, okay, we don't want to pay the price, so let's wait and see. What can we do? And the doc said, well, you can wait, and if it grows, then we better take it out. And, of course, this patient who I first heard this story from said, but what's the chance that if I wait and it grows that it becomes metastatic and therefore, it'll be too late and I'll be dead. Whereas if I take it out now in a precautionary mode, pay the price for the surgery I might not need, I'll have a lower likelihood of being dead. And the answer is yes. Now, what's the right answer to that? There is no right answer. That's your value judgment. But you can't make that value judgment until you understand risk, which is what can happen, what are the odds, which is why I'm telling you that this process that we use to communicate through an advocacy system in a soundbite world is so pernicious because what it does is it takes people away from understanding the nature of the problem so it's hard for them to apply the values that they want to do about whether they're risk-averse or not. Uh, another example, I was talking about catastrophic outcomes. Oh, 10 years ago, and uh, it had to do with melting of Greenland again and how many meters of sea level rise, and nobody really knows this to a large probability. And so an economist said, well, Steve, come on. What do you think the odds are that Greenland will melt with a few degrees warming? And right now I give much higher odds than I gave then because we didn't have this 20-year record of unprecedented melting. And I said, I don't know, 10%. 
And he said, 10%? You want to deny the Chinese a chance to catch up with us in per capita emissions and their development and deny poor people the opportunity to use cheap coal like, you know, we did uh, when there's only a 10% chance? And my lame response was, we were eating salmon that night. Well, you know, uh, Rob, there's only a 10% chance that the salmonella and the salmon, of course, you're going to eat it. You know, so they laughed. And then I had a much better one. Um, so we can do it here. Uh, how many people in this place in this fire-prone California have had a house fire? A few of you. Okay. Typically, it's 1% to 2%. How many of you have fire insurance? Fools. Way less than 10%. We already are very risk-averse when we have consequences that matter. We do not need 95% certainty. Here is where, again, People frame this problem by looking for exceptions to the conventional wisdom and claim until the exceptions are resolved, it isn't proved and it's premature to act, yet we're acting on a 1% risk and paying insurance. And here we're talking about 50% risks to the planetary life support system, and they're telling us that's not certain enough. And uh, it's not lost on some of you that that is special interest blabber. Uh, we heard that from the American Tobacco Institute for years. Remember? Three studies are equivocal about whether smoking causes cancer while they're ignoring the 33 that weren't. And, and they correctly said, and still to this day, we do not know biophysically the precise links between smoking and cancer. So they give you... A therefore, when there's no therefore there, therefore it's premature to act. That's a personal value judgment or risk management. Of course, they want to they protect market share. Whereas the data are so overwhelming epidemiologically, you know, the statistics, that you'd have to be crazy not to control this, even though you don't understand every detail of the mechanisms. So this is, again, where we have to do risk management, which is how do you want to deal with a preponderance of evidence, not an absolute certainty in every detail, which is why in the beginning spent so much time talking about the framing of the problem. Now, one more thing. Popular media. What's the pinnacle of reporting? Science writers or political writers? Yeah, we know. You don't get famous by being a science writer in the media. So political reporting. If you're covering politics in most countries, there are two dominant parties. So what is the first order of fairness? If you get the Democrat, you get the Republican. And I agree with that. They call that balance. But what happens when you're covering a complex topic like climate change or health or education or security, and there's no such thing as yes or no? you know, into the world and good for you. There's all these gradations of possibilities with different probabilities attached. So if you try to cover it as a yes or no, and you go out there and you take a 200-scientist report like the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, it goes through three years of writing, two rounds of reviews, a 1,000 review comments on every chapter, which the lead authors, I can tell you, because Terry and I have had to do this, and it's, I call IPCC my pro bono day job. It's half time for two years, and then I'll pay you. And you have to justify to three independent review editors how you've dealt with every one of a thousand comments. And then two petroleum geologists, you know, who are special interest in finding oil paid by you-know-which oil company because they have PhDs that give an equal status in a story or on television. You see, we get a little mad about that. And we call that utter distortion. And they say, oh, no, that's balance. It is not balance. It is utter distortion because they are not reporting the relative credibility of the multiple positions. And it means that you're leaving it up to the public and the political world to figure that out for themselves. They're capable of it, but they rarely do it. And that's, again, one of the reasons why we've had 35 years of being well-informed on these problems, and it's so hard to frame because they keep using the tried and true. They wheel out PhDs uh, who don't generally do the work, or a few strollers who do, and they say they have now provided the loyal opposition, which throws the problem in doubt, and we shouldn't do anything until it's resolved, uh, just exactly as a tobacco institute did. That framing still remains 
I'm sorry to tell you, effective. And the polls that just dropped in large part were due to the large advertisements and the fact that this is still going on. So between scientists bearing their lead and not wanting to talk till they have consensus and the media going out there and trying to find somebody who will say it ain't so, no matter how their credibility is relative to the mainstream, leads to confusion that only people can straighten out if they're literate and put in the time. And that, again, is a serious problem. Let's talk about tipping points. Uh, everybody here heard of that? All right, so what's a tipping point? Well, a school bus with your kids on it. So it goes up a hill, and now it comes to the top of the hill, and it comes down. Well, the top of the hill is a tipping point because gravity is going to make that bus still get, go down. Now, why don't we worry? Because we assume that the school board has done due diligence, right, that it's hired drivers who are well-trained and that they're constantly inspecting the brakes. Well, and they do. However, we're talking now about a planet in this metaphor in which there is no driver, just a bunch of quarreling teenagers called our governments, and we have no idea if the planet has brakes. So what we're doing is going headlong toward increasing our, our uh, warming and changing the climate outside of the range for which we have modern precedent in which human civilization evolved. We're not there yet, but we're getting there. And now what we're saying is, let's hope we're lucky. So what about Greenland? How could Greenland be a tipping point? Right now, it's melting at an unprecedented rate. The water is rolling down. Nobody knows if the water is freezing on the way down or reaching the bottom. In fact, NASA had a brilliant idea. They threw rubber duckies in, and they said, hey, if the rubber duckies flow out, we know it's there. But they can get stuck. So now this year, they have new ducks. They have what they call smart ducks. They put GPS in them, so we're going to find out how down low they go. This is actually critically important. Because if the water makes it all the way to the bottom, then it's going to heat the bottom and lubricate it. Run your hand over your hand, feel that heat. Once you start melting it, it creates a self-fulfilling prophecy where you could move toward five meters of sea level rise and there'd be no way to stop it. What we don't know is, does it need one more degree before that happens, two or three? My good friend Jim Hansen has said, well, one more degree and we're going to have a tipping point in Greenland. Maybe I'm an optimist. I only give that maybe a 25% chance. And two degrees, maybe a 60% chance. And three degrees, a 90% chance. Sounds like I'm optimistic. And I'm going to revise those probabilities as I learn new science. But now I'm a pessimist. I wouldn't rule out at 1% to 5%. It's already too late. And there are other tipping points that are out there, species extinction, changes in fire regimes in the West. We're a factor of five more fires right now in the western United States than we were 30 years ago associated with longer, drier, and hotter summers and people moving where they don't belong. There's multiple factors. Remember, there's never just one cause in a systems world. So the bottom line then is it's risk management. All I can say with high degree of confidence is the more we keep adding unprecedented levels of warming to the system, the more the number of tipping points that are going to be crossed. We know for sure they're there. We don't know for sure where they are. That's, again, risk management. But what are we playing with? The planetary life support system. This is not just an academic exercise. This is something we've got to have people deeply engaged in because we're talking about the sustainability for their children, the grandchildren, and the rest of nature, our behavior. What's the worst thing about tipping points like Greenland? We will probably not know when we've crossed it for 50 years. So our behavior in the next generation could precondition a sustainability issue for a millennium or 10, because when, once you melt an ice sheet, it's thousands of years to get it back, based upon the convenience of one species for one generation. I find that a very morally daunting prospect. And the real question then is, and this is where the policy debate comes along, how much is it going to cost to fix this? And that's what you've been concentrating on in Climate One is getting people to talk about that. And I'll do a little less of that because I know you have other speakers, but I wanted to say we have got to have a series of steps to help us invent our way out of this problem and lower the probabilities of crossing these thresholds. Remember, nobody knows for sure where they are, only that they're there. And that we have got to say that 
the less we stress the system, the less likely it is that we're going to be transgressing more and more of them. I think of it as a kid's skateboard run. You ever see these things? The kid's in the park, and it goes like that, and then it goes up vertical, and the kids jump, and the parents hide their eyes. Well, I think it's the same thing. As we keep adding degrees of warming, the number of thresholds and the, and the impacts that we have goes up not linearly but like that. And therefore, the whole key is keep it down under a few degrees warming, as you've heard, the two-degree limit. Two degrees is not going to be preventing dangerous change. Already hurricanes are more intense than they were. Fires are up. Uh, Arctic is melting, things of this kind. It's already too late to avoid some damage. But you cannot let that deter you because as you keep going up the curve, there'll be much greater potential damage. Don't worry about the water that's under the bridge. Let's deal with the stuff that's upstream. You can't get too hung up on what's too late. What we have to do is say, you know, we can't stop at all, but we can stop a lot. And let's stop what we can stop. And at the same time, let's do it smart by doing those things which not only reduce the impact of our footprint, you know, in terms of carbon and other things, but help us reduce air pollution that sends kids to the hospital with asthma, that helps reduce fires, which, remember, fires are primarily going to kill people through the smoke plumes and the air pollution, much more so than directly by burning to death. And therefore, that's another side effect we have to avoid. We've got to deal with increased drought and flood frequencies with sea level rise, hurricane intensities. All of these things are reduced by bringing down the magnitude of our footprint, and we have to look ways to do that. So I want to now turn to the policy issue. It's been very controversial, right? The, uh, the, uh, the environmentalists have been for years trying to get cap-and-trade programs out. Uh, industry has up until the last five to ten years been resistant, but now there are quite a large number of industries that no longer agree that they should be on the sidelines or throw rocks. In fact, when the U.S. Chamber of Commerce recently, in, in, in a complete head shaker, without checking with its membership, the, the 19th Century Mentality Board came to the conclusion that they wanted to have, they were going to sue EPA about climate regulation because they wanted a Scopes monkey trial on climate science because the people who talk about speculative, the deniers, are saying until all the dies are dotted, we don't know anything, which is, I told you, is complete scientific nonsense. And uh, it got people so mad that right here, right down the street from us, Peter Darby from PG&E pulled his company out which was a great act of courage because now many other companies, Steve Jobs, pulled his company out. And that what they have to learn is there's no such thing as a business monolith which says our job is to keep government off at all costs. They actually think they can do well by doing good. They can make money by inventing products that will actually help the world at the same time. So it's both moral and at the same time profitable. And that's what we need to do in the future. We need to align the forces of doing well with the forces of doing good. That's what the bills and the policies have to do. And I think we're starting to do that. So big fights over cap and trade. The... Uh, the Republicans have largely, not all, but many, called it cap and tax because their pollsters tell them, use the tax word and nobody will support you. Most economists prefer a tax to a cap and trade because of administrative simplicity. They are, in a way, functionally equivalent, but they're not exactly the same. I don't have time to go into all the details. But it's very, very politically divisive. And part of the reason is, supposing you use the moral argument You've got to have a price on carbon because the polluter should pay. And I agree, that's a moral argument. Somebody else will say, wait a minute, when the price of energy goes up, even though that sends proper signals to the market to invent alternatives that are less polluting and people to be less wasteful, for me, the increased cost of energy might lower the quality of my Pinot Noir. For a poor person, it might lower the quality of the protein to their family. So people view it as a regressive tax. That is how it is viewed very often in the developing world when they are reticent to want to enter into a Copenhagen-like agreement because they're afraid increasing the price will make their development difficult. And there's some truth in that. So the question is, do you hold the sustainability agenda of the planet hostage to that notion of equity? I would argue, no, you don't subsidize poverty with artificially low prices of commodities. You subsidize it with the real stuff, resources. 
You could, in the case of rising energy, have vouchers which allow people who have income below X to get $10,000 off buying a car that gets better for, better than 40 miles per gallon. You know, so it's not cash for clunkers. It's cash for the future. I mean, we have to learn to be creative. I do believe that we have to deal with equity. We have to have two acts of good governance. We have to protect the commons and our sustainability, but we also have to be fair in terms of an adaptation fund for the victims of the climate change already in the pipeline, and we also have to have an equity fund to try to, to, try to deal with people who will be hurt by the climate policies that are essential to get the problem solved. That can be done, but it requires, again, a literate public and a informed um, uh, decision-making base so that we can do both of those things. So how do we break this logjam of arguing constantly about uh, cap-and-trade, cap-and-tax, you know, uh, uh, bankrupt the economy? All of these claims are, by the way, fraudulent because it's not nearly that bad. It's been shown time and time again that if we had a $400 a ton, sounds an incredible carbon tax that over 10 years knocks out the coal industry and you substitute more expensive things, that it only takes about 2% of the global domestic, you know, gross domestic product in the world away. Well, that sounds outrageous. 2%, that's trillions of dollars. It's just crazy. And those numbers you will see, I call this the Carl Sagan problem, billions and trillions. And most people don't know billions and trillions. So it sounds astronomical. And these people have been successful in blunting climate climate policy. But the truth is, after the last year, before the last year, we were growing something like 5% per year in the economy. Now we went down, but the typical projections are when it gets back to, quote, normal, about 2% per year. That means if the economy is growing at 2% per year, these trillions of dollars lost that we're talking about, which may not even be true, they're made up in one year. Because if it's 2% loss of the GDP, but you're growing at 2%, that makes you 500% per person richer in 2101 with relatively low climate damage or 500% richer per person in 2100 with high climate damage. It's cheap insurance. But when you frame it in billions and trillions, people don't get it. So how can we get past this problem in my last minute? And I would argue there's a sequence. And the, uh, the last chapter of Science as a Context for it which is mostly a history, but I get progressive and I try to say, what do we need to do at Copenhagen? What do we need to do in Washington? The first thing we have to do is stop fighting endlessly about how many percent below 1990 we're going to be. I call that numerology. I want to know how many tens of billions are we going to spend on real policies to invent our way out of the problem. How much are we going to spend on adaptation? Number one, we have to deal with people who will be hurt, who are living in harm's way for climate change already in the pipeline. Number two, we have to implement efficiency. California has half the energy per capita of the United States, a third of Texas. Why? Because it has rules for performance standards. They need to be nationalized and globalized, and they have high payback rates. Number three, we have to come up with incentives to help private venture capital get into the market. Why can't we do loan guarantees? So I asked that question in um, – promise I'm almost done. I asked that question um, of a talk I was giving in Washington about two months ago, and somebody in the audience in three-piece suit got up and said, well, Professor Schneider, how much are you talking about? How much How much do you think it's going to take that we'd have to back up loan guarantees to get a trillion dollars of venture capital to flow into these brilliant startups so that they can help us invent a way out of the problem, some of whom will be Google and get very rich? And I said, I don't know. I haven't thought of it. Uh, I haven't done a calculation, but based on what I've heard of R&D costs, $20, $30 billion a year. And he said, are you crazy? We're in a fiscal meltdown. We can't spend that kind of money. And so I was thinking what I'm going to say, and the moderator said to me, please answer the congressman's question. Oh, okay. So I said, congressman, I presume since the majority did that you voted for the bailout bill. And he said, yeah, reluctantly, but I did. And I said, yeah, I would have reluctantly voted for it too. So I'm with you on that. I said, as I recall, you just spent $750 billion in one year to bail out a bunch of underregulated greedy bankers, and you don't want to spend 4% of that every year for the next 10 years to help us invent our way out of the problem to protect the planetary life support system. And he said, I didn't say I didn't want to. I'm just telling you what my colleagues think. I said, you better tell your colleagues to look at the mirror and ask them if the person looking back at them needs a values transplant. <laughs> because that's what we're talking about. The fourth step in the sequence 
is shadow price on carbon. We're having all our focus on the fourth step. And I'm really worried that we're going to forget one, two, and three because we can do them immediately. And the fifth step's geoengineering. Ask me about that, and I'll talk about it afterward. Actually, the truth is, in terms of one, two, three, four, every one of those is necessary. You cannot solve the problem without all of them, but none is sufficient. So that's why I said it's a sequence. We must have a price on carbon, otherwise the market signals won't be right. But if we're fighting the next four years trying to get it, let's do the others as, you know, along the way. Let's not forget them. They're actually in Waxman-Markey. It's just they're getting none of the media because the media is focusing on the boxing match, which is, you know, uh, protect the environment versus the economy when it's actually a false frame. So let me end there by saying this is a public policy problem in which the honest politicians, not always an oxymoron, need the support of people who know they're trying hard. And when most people are literally bamboozled, knocked off their pins by this false dichotomy debate, it really slows down the capacity of democracy to work. And my last title in science as a chapter was, I think it's called, What Keeps Me Up Awake at Night. I wanted to call it, Can Democracy Survive Complexity? But the National Geographic Press said, no, no, that's too much of a downer. But that's really what I worry about, much more than how many degrees we warm. How are we going to deal with this problem and others like it if it requires public understanding so they can send the right value signals to our representatives when they're completely knocked off their pins by this cacophonous, fraudulent debate where all, all parties are given equal, equal credibility when they don't deserve it? And we have got to take back the airwaves in a way and make certain that what's out there is more credible, not just simply following some formulaic balance. Thanks very much. Our thanks to Stephen Schneider, Stanford climatologist, for his comments today here at Climate One. I'm Greg Dalton. Dr. Schneider, welcome. Thank you, Greg. We have a number of questions. Uh, the first one is uh, back to your comments about the scientists and the limitations of the scientific method. Uh, can the scientific method, with all its caveats and doubts that you mentioned, you know, how can that change in terms of better informing, or scientists change in terms of better informing uh, policymakers and the media who work in a world of, of sound bites and, and, and very you know, short simplifications? So how's that bridge going to be, uh, the divide be bridged? Well, I don't object to my colleagues who say that they want to have consensus. I just want them to focus their consensus on how likely things are, and I think we can do that. For example, I was asked at the end of the IPCC um, working group two, that's the impacts, adaptation, vulnerability, plenary. Plenaries where 120 governments get together and the small islands try to spin the report to be more radical and the, and the fossil fuel states who are much more powerful try to spin it down. And, and in the end, we try to come up with what we hope is a reason, reasonable report. How can you summarize this 1,000-page thing or the 5,000-word uh, summary uh, in a media-worthy soundbite. So uh, Seth Bornstein from the AP was pushing me, says, come on, Steve, you can do it, you can do it. And uh, maybe because I hadn't slept in 40 hours, and I said, okay, don't be a poor person in a hot country, live in hurricane alley, low-lying uh, coastlines, the high Arctic uh, mountains with uh, glaciers, or in uh, subtropical drought, uh, fire, and flood-prone places. So I squeezed it in. He got it on the evening news. Um, now, the point is that that's a complete oversimplification, though it is the bite. So what we have to do and what I advise my scientist colleagues to do and what I do myself is, yes, I have my soundbite. Uh, I write op-eds, which are three soundbites. Uh, but I also write Scientific American articles or Atlantic Monthly, which are a little more depth. I have a 300-page website, climatechange.net, where you can find out what I really think in depth. And then I write long books. And those long books not only have to tell the nuances, but they have to tell where you change your mind and where the community was wrong and how it evolved. It's what I call a hierarchy of backup products. So I think that scientists can be responsible, even in the soundbite world, if they try to have that hierarchy, the only sad part is so the sound bites heard by 20 million, right? The op-ed is read by maybe, if you're lucky, 2 million. The Scientific American by 200,000. The website by 20,000. And the book by, I hope, 20,000. But you keep dropping down. But what else can you do? Well, you could invent a hip-hop version of that that might reach more people. <laughs> 
Well, well actually, I mean, Flip, but 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 popular culture is doing a job translating for things where the, the complexity is lost. There's the, and, and youth are doing that too. Videos that are very compelling, telling the story in ways that maybe people of our generation um, aren't doing very effectively. But youth and other other tools for communication that scientists um, maybe are limited in doing. I think all of that is very good. The problem, though, is when you go out on the blogosphere and you go out and, and you make these statements, you're not the only one out there. There are other people out there with a lot of money that they're paying to very, very skilled professionals to spin their message, you know, showing, uh, uh, as I said, carbon dioxide and green trees and saying, you know, pay us for the benefit of the this coal industry does this. And so then it's up to the public again because all of us can play that game. And I wish that people could be literate enough to, to crack through because, unfortunately, a lot of what we're going to hear in life, whether it's political uh, ads or uh, product ads or or claims from various interests is quite frankly the north end of a southbound horse, and we've got to learn to discern that. So I teach a class at Stanford called Environmental Literacy, and I have what I call the three questions for the literate. So here's what you ask people when they make a claim: What can happen? What are the odds? And then ask them a third question and don't expect a soundbite. How do you know? That takes time. And listen, watch out for the myth busters and the truth tellers who have the answer. When somebody's a little more apologetic and they're saying, well, you know, we're not sure, but we have these ranges, I'm going to bet you 9 out of 10 they're much more credible than the ones who were cocksure, especially on complex issues. We can train people not to have to understand the details so they can cut through this cacophony of blogsters. But we haven't done a very good job on our educational system of doing that. We've been so oriented on teach the test instead of teaching people how to learn to create the quality of an argument that I think we really hurt our democracy. And scientists have been part of the problem by their reluctance to want to get out there and using simple metaphors because if they can't put in full disclosure in their first paragraph, they're somehow irresponsible, which means they'll never get on the air. Question from the audience. What is the most interesting piece of new data or analysis you've seen recently? There's an overwhelming amount of information out there. What's, what's really caught your eye? The most interesting piece of analysis, and this may surprise you, is the absolute misrepresentation of the non-warming of the last 10 years into proof that there's no anthropogenic climate change. It is about as specious and unscientific as anything out there, and it is legion. Now, uh, I was asked this by uh, Congressman Rohrbacher about two years ago when I talked to the House Science and Technology Committee, and he said, hasn't warmed up since 1998, which, by the way, was the warmest El Nino, and therefore the planet was a little warmer. So he did what the statisticians called. He cherry-picked the endpoint. He picked the hottest previous year, and then it's been flat. Well, it also turns out that for some reason nobody understands the sunspots have been on vacation for the last decade. And when there's no sunspots, there's a few tenths of a watt per square meter less heating. So there are now two factors which would make the last 10 years be flat. It doesn't mean that, that human warming isn't continuing. It means that it's opposing this natural short-term trend. So what I told the good congressman was, but congressman, if you went from 1992 to 2002, the, the temperature went up so steeply, we're going to hell in a handbasket. So we're looking at a steep up and a flat. That's the normal progression of sampling error, of noise in the climate system, and fairly soon the sun will come back on. We're going into an El Nino year. We're going to go back in another steep ascent any day now. And, oh, no, I've proved it wrong. I've falsified it because greenhouse gases are going up and the temperature is not, therefore it's wrong. It's absolute nonsense. I, my analogy was this is like trying to figure out Willie Mays' lifetime batting average by how he did in the summer of 1960. I mean, this is a sampling error. And what has completely amazed me about this piece of data is how much traction it has had in the media, in front of Congress, and in what I would call the denier set to saying we have the smoking gun, that there's no anthropogenic climate change, when all they're doing is chasing noise. We have a question to that effect uh, from the audience today, which I think you've answered about the, it's cooling, not warming. 
um, so we can we can move on. Uh, another question from the audience on feedback feedback loop. Uh, how much increased methane is occurring inside the Arctic Circle? How do scientists assess the risk of runaway emissions? That's a very good question. The, uh, if you just take a straightforward computer model and you drive it only with four watts of energy trapped per square meter, that's what happens if you double carbon dioxide, a couple of Christmas tree bulbs in the infrared that you can't see. Um, the Earth's supposed to warm up a degree and a half, something like that. But most of the models say it'll warm up more than that. Why? Because when you heat up the earth, you evaporate more water, and water vapor is the principal greenhouse gas. That's what we call a positive or amplifying feedback. Positive doesn't mean good for you. It means continuing in the same direction. Well, what about a negative feedback? Supposing you add carbon dioxide. Well, the coal industry is right. Some of that will be taken out of the air by green plants. However, what they don't tell you is that when you warm up the soils, which have twice as much dead organic matter as the live organic matter in the trees and the living mass, that the bacteria there do their processes faster, and therefore they will decompose that carbon dioxide into, I mean, that carbon, excuse me, into carbon dioxide, or if it's anaerobic, meaning it's like in the tundra, into methane, because the bacteria that do that job make methane if there's no oxygen and, and CO2 if there is. So the question is, who wins? Because the negative feedback is the trees taking out the CO2. That's the stabilizer. The positive feedback is the soils decomposing faster. Well, it's very hard to answer that without deep quantitative understanding, and the community is improving its understanding. And IPCC, which was not conservative on this, made the comment that when you warm up more than three or four degrees, it's virtually, no, they didn't say virtually certain, likely that... Uh, that the positive feedback wins, that the decomposition of organic matter in the soils and the, and the melting of permafrost and the production of methane will actually add another 10 or 20 percent onto the greenhouse gases as a positive or amplifying feedback. So what we're worrying about is are we building into the system a amplifying lever that doesn't trigger till we warm up a couple of degrees, but we're building it into the system, and therefore what we'll get in the end is worse. Probably the answer is probably yes. It's another reason why I keep saying, can we please keep this under a few degrees so we don't have to perform this experiment on laboratory Earth? And uh, that's the, I had a book out of that title in 97, and it was called, and the, the subtitle was The Planetary Gamble We Can't Afford to Lose. And... Um, all of these things are part of the feedback story. Uh, there are other feedbacks. Uh, if you melt snow and ice, it reflects away sunlight, and that continues to accelerate the warming. Most of the feedbacks tend to be positive with one very big uncertainty, and that's clouds. If you evaporate water, there's going to if you I'm sorry, if you heat the surface, you're going to evaporate more water. That is a positive feedback because of the greenhouse effect. But if it makes more clouds, clouds are bright and wide. If they're wide and white, they're going to reflect away sunlight, which is a stabilizer. And for many, many years, people believed that was true. My first paper in the atmospheric sciences in 1972 showed that it may not be true. Supposing you heated the system, and instead of the clouds getting wider, the tops got taller. Well, where is it warmer? Higher up or lower down, right? Lower down. Mm -hmm. So if the clouds go higher... Their tops are colder. They actually emit less heat to space, and the whole system has to heat up to catch up. It's a positive feedback. And if you get the clouds to get wider and taller along a certain curve, economists call it a different curve, indifference curve, that means there's no feedback at all. We are uncertain about cloud feedback, I'm sorry to say, even now, 40 years later, to a factor of three. So when we project the future, we say if we're really lucky, we're going to warm up one or two more degrees. That's the best we can do, which makes me nervous. If we're really unlucky, I mean Celsius. If we're really unlucky, we're talking five degrees Celsius, you know, nine Fahrenheit. That's a temperature difference in an ice age and an interglacial cycle happening. It rewrote the ecological face of the world. And it happened in nature in 5,000 years. We're talking about that possibility in one or two centuries. It is completely daunting and why you find so many ecologists and climate scientists concerned about this problem. But it's not because we're certain the positive feedbacks are going to win, but because we have at least a 10 to 50 percent chance. 
And again, how many people want to take that kind of risk with the planetary life support system when you can fix the problem by a one-year delay in being 500% richer in a century? So let's talk about timescales because scientists are concerned things are happening much quicker, much much faster. And yet we talked earlier, people have a hard time uh, personally understanding things that are far away in, in time and, and space. And, and so how, how can individuals get their mind around these sorts of risks? So I understand you know, my home might burn down, but people have a hard time tying climate risk to their particular individual life. Therefore, why should I care and take action? Yeah, no, you're, you're absolutely right. And that brings us to this whole question about people act not on facts, but on perceptions. But even before we get there, my political scientist friends have an expression which I call the first law of political science, which is that all politics is local. And my lemma is, and short term, where are climate scientists most confident? Global and long term. Remember I said a decade doesn't matter to us. We care 30 years. This signal is unequivocal. In fact, IPCC, even its conservative self, said it was unequivocal that the Earth was warming and very likely greater than 9 out of 10 were responsible for most of it in the last 40 years. That's amazingly strong language for scientists because that's the well-established bits. And then we say we don't know what's going to happen to precipitation in Kansas. It's speculative. But the people in Kansas care about what happens to precipitation in Kansas. They're much less interested in 30-year global trends. So we have a real disconnect between the political and media focus on local short-term events that are palpable to us and emotionally tangible to us, um, even when we're confident about relative long-term outcomes. And there's a very strong burden for communications to make people connect those pieces, and you're right. Uh, where do perceptions come from? Uh, well, is it warming in my backyard this year? How many people said, oh, it was a cold winter last year. Where is global warming? That is completely irrelevant. And, but it isn't irrelevant politically. Or there's lots of snow this year, so right. Right. And uh, what's relevant is long-term process. So that's where we have to get people to try to see that. I, I, again, try to use metaphors. If you worry about the fluctuation of your stock and your uh, in your retirement plan, every hour I think you will die of a heart, stress-induced heart attack. You know, you've just got to get to the back of the room and think about long term. And um, you just can't look at every detail. It not only will it drive you crazy, it's not, it's not actually predictive of what's going to happen in the long term. So I think that we have to try to use analogies and metaphors that people can relate to um, where long term matters. Um, their training of their kids. Okay, it's all right if the kid plays, you know, plays a video game for an hour tonight. But if the kid plays the video game for four hours every night, that's going to be very different than, you know, indulging them once. So we're, we know how to deal with long-term issues. And we just have to take that from our common experience and extrapolate it into a public scale. And that's where we have a lot of trouble. How do we translate our common experience to a collective when, my, as my students say to me, what can I do? I'm not authorized to negotiate with the Chinese. And there's a lot they can do. They can control their consuming lifestyle. They can turn their you know, products off when they're not using them. They can get groups of students together who can discuss problems and become informed. They can link their groups to other groups. They can testify to city councils to get them to put energy-efficient products in the town. They can get those city councils to talk to other city councils. They can become a political force. And they can you know, calmly learn enough that they can answer some of the polemics. When Uncle Joe tells them, because he sat there and listen to that famous paper publishing professor, you know, Professor Limbaugh or Beck, uh, that this guy's a bunch of nonsense. There's so much we can do before we're, we have to worry about negotiating with the Chinese. Do you think that those sorts of individual actions, which are some size, sometimes trivialized as insignificant given the scale of what we need to do, that buying a Prius may make you feel good, address your guilt, but it really doesn't do very much? Well, it reminds me when I first testified in 88, uh, I think it was Senator Bryan from Nevada, who's having a hearing trying to increase the CAFE standards. That's the gas mileage standards, which had he succeeded probably would have prevented Detroit from going in the tank because they would have now been able to compete with the more efficient 
makers. But in any case, they were out there opposing it. They accused me of being the enemy of the children of the workers and, you know, and all this kind of stuff. And one of the guys in the auto industry said, well, come on. He said, the United States is only 22% of the world's total emissions of greenhouse gases. He forgot to say 4% of the population, but all right, 22%. And the transportation industry in the U.S. is only one-third of that. And if we impose these standards, um, uh, it would only save a few percent for the whole industry. So for my company, we're going to save 1%, and we're going to have to go you know, into a tremendous loss of income, and it will be swamped by Chinese population growth in one year. And uh, and then, so, of course, I was asked by the senator, what do you say to that argument? And I said, you know, I've heard the coal industry say that the United States is only 22 percent of the world's emissions, that coal is only responsible for 45 percent of that, and if we had a $100 a ton carbon tax, the coal miners' daughters would all be living in poverty, and we'd only save 3 percent of the world emissions, and that would be swamped by uh, by Indian coal use in four years. So I've heard 100 people each one telling me they're responsible for only 1% of the problem, therefore they demand exemption. So what have you got? 100% of the problem. Everybody has to do their own fair share. The argument that I'm too small to make a difference is equivalent to saying, why should I pay my taxes? I mean, after all, I'm only one you know, uh, millionth of the, uh, if that, maybe less, of the national income, so I'm way too small. And why should I vote? I mean, after all, I'm only one vote. If we don't do our own private due diligence and everybody follows that model, then what we have is mass irresponsibility. And you cannot use the argument, I'm too small. Everybody has to do their share. Stephen Schneider is a climatologist at Stanford University and our guest today at Climate One at the Commonwealth Club. Let's talk about geoengineering. Uh, you mentioned it, it briefly. It's been quite a stir lately, uh, partly because of the Super Freakonomics uh, chapter, the last chapter in that book, which created uh, a lot of energy and, and animosity uh, from, from the environmental movement and others. Uh, yet some very reasonable people say that if the political process fails to cut emissions, we may get in a desperate situation and we may need to try geoengineering as a last resort and we need to plan or prepare to these things. So let's talk about your thoughts on geoengineering and whether there might be scenarios to try it. Okay, let's explain to our various audiences what that is. So we're adding greenhouse gases and other things to the system that trap so many watts of energy over every square meter in invisible infrared heat. Well, every Anybody here, everybody here has flown on a plane. You look down, if it's a hazy day, right, you can see the, the from this, this pollution haze, you can see it looks whiter than the surface over which you're flying. That's well, what I call the first law of climate theory. If you can see it, the sun can see it. So therefore, if you're seeing it bright and white, it's reflecting sunlight back to space. It's actually cooling the Earth. I even had a theory in 1970 that that cooling might dominate warming. It took us two years to prove it wrong. And I'm very proud I tell the story in Science Contact Sport as to why I published first what was wrong with it, because these hazes are not global. They're only regional. However, what geoengineering would do is it would deliberately make that haze in the stratosphere global so that it would, in fact, offset that four watts of energy per square meter and we wouldn't have to, you know, drive the polar bear ecosystem to extinction or melt ice sheets. And it sounds like, and it's cheap. You just take the guns of the battleship Missouri, take them out of mothballs, and you shoot this dust up there. And you can do it for a mere set of billions instead of trillions for rechanging the energy system. It's one of the big arguments for it, proponents, right. is its cost. But two problems, very severe. The carbon dioxide that we're adding to the system, as Susan Solomon, who ran Working Group 1, has shown, lasts a 1,000 years typically in the atmosphere. Who do we want to trust for a 1,000 years to manage the climate for us? What cadre of controllers are going to get through wars hot and cold, through chicanery, uh, through miscalculation, malevolence, uh, and other things? What a potential for international conflict. So I believe that the social problems are much more serious than the engineering problems, because supposing there were a simultaneous horrible hurricane that killed thousands or millions of people even in some cities, they'd be blamed for it, and you couldn't prove they didn't have something to do it. So that's the first problem. The second problem is if you keep adding CO2, you're going to acidify the oceans, even if you could perfectly offset how many watts per square meter. My analogy is like 
the heroin addict. What's the right way to cure heroin? Well, you send them to the hospital, they go cold turkey, you get them through it, then you deal with therapy, why were they on heroin in the first place, and in the end you end up with a, a whole person who doesn't need that therapy. But what if that doesn't work? Supposing there's no other alternative but methadone, it's probably better than, than uh, heroin. To me, this kind of radiative offset geoengineering is planetary methadone. It says we can't solve the problem right, so let's do it as a last resort. But I have some good news. We might be stuck doing that, but not for a thousand years. There's two kinds of geoengineering, the good kind. Take carbon out of the system. You can take it out of the system and store it underground. Can we do that at scale? We don't know. We have to try. We can take carbon out with biochar. That is, we can cook waste at a few hundred degrees for an hour or two, produce natural gas, which is made from agricultural waste or from deliberately grown plantation waste, uh, plantation biomaterial, and that way you're getting it without adding carbon to the system. And at the bottom, 50% of the carbon is in the form of char, charcoal, and it pro it's proved to be a very important soil amendment, so you can get a win-win, you can increase carbon. Uh, um, stocks in the soil and sequester it, and at the same time you can increase yields. This is a win-win. The problem is we know it works at the scale of you know, tens of thousands of tons. Maybe will it work at the scale of tens of billions? The big problem is the S-word, scalability. So if we are going to ever be forced into this planetary methadone, it should be with the mindset that it's a few-decade uh, palliative to try to get carbon removal technology in place. That's the reason why I have personally not opposed research in this area. But implementation of geoengineering without widespread and signed planetary consensus in terms of a wide national, multinational agreement would be to me the height of irresponsibility and close to an act of war. So we've got to keep it on the back burner. But let's try to work on the good side, on the carbon removal side. People are even trying to design engineering machines that with certain chemicals and you run water by them will convert CO2 in the atmosphere into a slag. Well, that slag's got carbon in it. You've got to put it somewhere. Nothing is going to be cost-free. But there are a lot of clever ideas. That's why I want that learning by doing feeding frenzy. That was my third step. Remember public-private partnerships to invent our way out of the problem. Part of that has to be on trying to get carbon removal. We're getting really close to the end. I have one last question, uh, a couple last questions. Uh, one is you've spoken about the need for directing research towards big breakthrough and innovations. And quickly, can you say where you think that research funding should be directed uh, at universities to get the kind of uh, break technological breakthroughs that we would need to, to address climate? Well, the reason I call it a learning by doing feeding frenzy is I don't know which the winner is yet. We don't know whether the Google is going to emerge from the crowd. We have to have that experiment. So therefore, we have to have a lot of VC and, and, and partnerships to get it out there. I want to work on storage. I'd love to see us work on thermal storage for solar thermal, not just photovoltaic, but the kind that converts, you know, like the rooftop uh, heaters for your, for your uh, hot water. Because if you could store that, that electricity... I'm sorry, that heat for about four to six hours, you then could use it through the end of the day when the sun, sun stops shining. That's a big one. We have to try to improve the efficiency of photovoltaics. We need smart grids. We have to take, we have to relook. Now, I'm not a big fan of this because I think there are going to be side effects, but we have to relook at nuclear in some circumstances, the small reactors and the disposal problem. Right now, it's priced out of the market and there are serious problems, but we should be looking. Nothing should be off the table. We've got to look at the biochar. We have to take a look at, uh, at wind uh, and the, uh, the capture and sequestration to see if it can be done cost-effectively and safely. All of those things have to be done, and the single most important thing that we have to do is we've got to work with China, India, Indonesia, Brazil, and Mexico to say nothing of the even poorer countries so that they do not repeat the Victorian Industrial Revolution with sweatshops, coal burning, and internal combustion engines, but leapfrog high-tech. They will not do that without some partnerships with us, and I think corporate-to-corporate -corporate partnerships to share profits and patents sponsored by governments would be a great way to do it, not donor-recipient model, which everybody hates. Real quickly, a question from the audience. Why don't we use science to control our population growth? Population is at, growth is at the very bottom of this 
problem. Remember, Paul Ehrlich and John Holdren years ago, 40 years ago, said IPAT, impact is population times affluence times technology. I want you to tell me, however, what political entity around the world, other than the China One Policy family, is talking about depopulating? You, it's politically pretty much a non-starter. We have to reduce our population overshoot. I agree. What is, who's talking about reducing our affluence growth rate? Nobody. One of the reasons some of us have been forced to technology is because right now that's the best card we have to play. My hope is that behavioral change will come along where it won't just be technology, but we won't have an endless need for affluence growth and population growth as some kind of political good, but that, in fact, what we'll do is view our current situation as a dangerous population affluence overshoot toward a much more stable world. But before we get there, we'd better start working on technology and get our mentality changed. Some of you may know that uh, Climate One was founded two years ago this month, and uh, after I went to uh, an Arctic expedition on global warming, and uh, when I came back, Steve was one of the first, the very first person who actually talked to me. Uh, it took time. Thank you very much. So it's a deep personal pleasure to have him here today because when I knew very little about climate change, you gave me the lay of the land, and uh, I was very helpful. And two weeks ago, Tim Flannery uh, was here at Climate One, and he's the author of, of The Weathermakers and has a new book, Now or Never. And he told me that actually it was 10 years ago in Japan that he was first awakened to climate change uh, when he heard you talk. And uh, there was a talk by you, I don't know if it was Kyoto or somewhere, and so the point is that listening to, listening to Steve Schneider can change your life. Coming to Climate One can change the world. Thank you. So with that, thank you, Dr. Schneider. Thank you very much. Our thanks to Stephen Schneider, Stanford climatologist, for his comments here at Climate One at the Commonwealth Club. I'm Greg Dalton, and now this meeting is adjourned.